Good morning, my name is Kyle and I'm one of the pastors here. If you take your Bibles and turn to that passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2. Uh, as, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you on the round tables. You can get up and go grab one, feel free. If you don't know where the book of Revelation is, it's at the very end. So make like your Hebrew and open at the end of the book and start flipping backwards and you will get there very quickly. As you are turning there, I want, to, uh, I want you to imagine something with me. You are going to a new restaurant. You're very excited to check it out. Maybe it's date night. And you're out at this restaurant, and you stand there. You had a reservation. You um, walk up to the restaurant at the time of the reservation. You're maybe like two minutes early. And they say, okay, we don't have a table ready for you yet, but just um, it'll be ready in a moment. And a moment goes by. And two moments go by. And then you're like five minutes over the time of your reservation. And then you're ten minutes over the time of your reservation. And, and in fact, you can't even see anyone manning the desk. You don't know where the people are. are there, is the restaurant shut down? Eventually, 20 minutes later, they seat you. Uh, someone comes by and they say, we'll be by to get your order uh, and, and your drink order in a bit. In the meantime, would you like... Water, sure, water's great. It's 10 minutes before you get your water. You get your water, they go away, and they say, well, we'll give you some time to look up, and then you're like, I've had time. I know what I want. I, I, was, I was like looking at home on your online. I know what I want, right? And so then they go off, and, uh, and they still get, you, you kind of flag them down, and you get them to come over, and you tell them what you want, and you order the food. It takes forever for your food to come out. At this point, you're not having the best experience. But you take your silverware and you slowly and delicately cut what is the most perfectly cooked meal you have seen in a long time. You put the flavors in your mouth and they just melt. It's amazing. You sit and enjoy this exquisite meal. Maybe it's so good because you've been waiting so long. I don't know. But by the end of it, uh, you think, that was a pretty good meal. You've got to go to the movie. The movie starts in 10 minutes. You can still make it to the movie except for the fact that you can't get a hold of your server. They pass by you, then they go by again, then you, go, you try to get their attention, you're waving at this point, you're trying to flag them down. Eventually, you walk back to them with the credit card, and you say, could you please run it right now? They run it, you pay, you leave. Someone asks you a couple days later, so how was that new restaurant? You went and checked it out, right? What do you say? Uh, what? Was it good? How do you give the review? I mean, the review is mixed, is it not? On the one hand, the food was amazing. On the other hand, the service was horrible. And so you're saying, I, I don't really know what, like, I've got these mixed feelings about this restaurant. And I, I'm not even sure how to put it in the words because on the one hand, it was so amazing. And on the other hand, it was so terrible. And it was both of those things all at the same time. We've been in a series in the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And Jesus is writing to these churches to tell them uh, what he thinks. 
And when we get to the church of Pergamum, the church this week, we find that what he thinks is mixed. It's a mixed review. On the one hand, it's so amazing. On the other hand, it's so terrible. And you know what? That's kind of a good description of the church throughout history. Is it not? I mean, on the one hand, some of the most beautiful, amazing things that have been done in society and in the world have been done in and through the church. Uh, women's suffrage. Abolition of slavery. Um, yeah, apartheid. Uh, the end of apartheid. Uh, so many things. And yet, at the same time, in and through the church, some of the most horrendous and atrocious things have been done. It's a mixed review. But the church that Jesus writes to here, he's writing and he writes to their specific situation and the specific conflict that they're facing. But I think they're very relevant for us today. So let's consider how the church at Pergamum situation might relate to us. Why don't we pray as we do that? Lord, I ask that that you would continue to speak through your word to those who need to hear. That you who, who have the double-edged sword in your mouth, that you would divide us up and that we may see that your surgical knife comes to heal and not to destroy. We ask these things that you might have the rewards of your suffering, Jesus. Amen. Well, here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the context, the commendation, the confrontation, and the consolation. So, I don't even think I can do that again. So, I hope you got it if you're a note taker. The context, who knows. Uh, So, let's look at the context. Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum is enemy territory. The church at Pergamum is in enemy territory. In verse 13, we find out that this is where Satan dwells and where his throne is. Now, when Jesus writes to the church and he says that you dwell where Satan's throne is, um, we're not quite sure what he is specifically referring to. You see, Pergamum is a religious center, and we don't know what he's referring to, not because uh, we don't have enough information. We don't know what he's referring to because there are so many things that fit the bill. You see, at Pergamum, there were three temples dedicated to the emperor, to imperial worship. See, back in the ancient world, that was the most popular religion of the day. We talked about this last week. Uh, Anybody could have their own private religious gods, their family gods, their city gods, their, uh, their, um, their own traditional gods, but uh, everyone, and you could have as many of those or as few as you want in private, but everyone publicly had to pay homage to the emperor. You had to submit to Caesar and confess allegiance to him. You see, uh, Rome's uh, policy was uh, Roman first. And nationalism was the order of the day. And that's what held everything together. You could worship whatever God you wanted to privately, but publicly you had to pay allegiance to Caesar. Uh, 
This should sound a little familiar. Uh, So since Satan's throne, with talk of a throne, and the fact that later on in Revelation 13 and in Revelation 17, uh, the emperor, Caesar, is likened in the government to a beast who is in league with Satan, maybe we think Satan's throne is the emperor. Maybe it's the imperial cult. But there are other things that fit the bill as well. Like the largest temple there was a temple to the goddess Alcleptus. Uh, Alcleptus was the god of health and healing. And her symbol was a snake. And as those of you who might know, in the Bible, Satan is continually likened to a snake. So maybe that was that was what Satan's throne referred to. Or maybe there was, it referred to this temple complex. And at that temple complex, there was a, a temple. It was kind of like a mall. It was like an ancient mall. Uh, and at this mall, you could go to various shops. One of the shops was the temple to uh, Athena. The other shop that you could go to was the temple of the god Zeus, the god of power. And there was also, on this huge temple mount, this complex was the great altar to Zeus, with snakes all over it. So which of these did it refer to? We're not sure. We don't know. But here's what we do know. We know at Pergamum, they would have been very tempted to worship at the imperial cult. They would have been very tempted to look to the government to provide and do for them what only Jesus can and should provide and do for them. We also know that at Pergamum, there was an idol for every human desire. And so, you could take your pick of whatever God you wanted. If, if power was your thing, and if that's what you prized most, you, there was Zeus. If health and healing is what you wanted most, then there was Asclepius. If, uh, if pleasure was what you sought after most in life, then there was Dionysus, the god of wine, or there was Aphrodite, the god of sex. If children and the nuclear family were your thing, maybe you're a little more conservative, a little more traditional, there was the temple of Artemis. There was a god for every human desire. You know, we... Don't call them temples. We don't usually call them idols or gods. But I'm not sure our world is all that different. I mean, an idol is anything that you look to to be and do for you what only God can be and do for you. Whatever you cling to, rest in, and rely upon, Martin Luther said, that is your God. Whatever you call out to when you get in trouble, the place you go to first, that's your God. And we have idols in our day too. Uh, If image and looks are your thing, then maybe in, in possessions, then maybe it's the mall is your temple. If, uh, if it's health and healing, maybe it's the Mayo Clinic that you look to. If, it's, uh, if what you really want is knowledge and control through knowledge, then maybe it's the university. 
if, um, if, uh, if what you are really after in life is the nuclear family, then maybe, then maybe there are things that we can go to there. The reality is this, that though we have as many, as many gods as we have desires, Maybe the thing that you prize the most is tranquility. Well, there's yoga. Or maybe it's, um, or maybe it's, maybe it's a good experience. And there's restaurants and there's the theater. Well, whatever it is, we, we have our idols as well. And the church in Pergamum, they had idols all around them. And in the midst of this, Jesus commends them. The commendation. Look, verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet, yet, you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the midst of this context. You know, to profess Jesus' name, to hold fast to his name, means that you necessarily deny some other names. Because Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. And to profess that Yahweh is salvation, it actually means that power is not salvation. To profess that Yahweh is salvation means that a trendy diet in the next trendy diet is not salvation. To profess that Yahweh is salvation means that sex and sexual expression and freedom of sexual expression is not salvation. To profess that Yahweh is salvation means that the next vacation or making more money is not salvation. To profess that Yahweh is salvation means that you necessarily say that that having a marriage or children, not salvation. That Donald Trump or Barack Obama are not salvation. None of these are salvation, but Jesus is salvation. You see, the people at Pergamum, they held fast to Jesus' name, which means that they refused to believe the lies that the idols told them. And we always have idols whispering lies in our ears. If you only had me, then life would be good. If you only had me, then you would be fulfilled. Or, as long as you have me, things will be okay. And we all have these idols whispering in our ears. And people of Pergamum did too. And they refused to believe them. They held fast to Jesus' name. They held fast to Jesus' name. What about us? Do you refuse to believe the lies that if you could only be fitter or smarter or have this degree or have that spouse or have this many kids or have this standard of living or make this much money or have this title, then life would be fulfilling, then you would be satisfied. If only I had this, then I would be safe and protected and things would be okay. The people of Pergamum, they refused to believe the lies and it wasn't easy (laughs) Notice what verse 13 says. Jesus says, You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
Jesus is saying that this guy Antipas, he professed faith in Jesus. He said, Jesus is salvation and Jesus brings life. And he did so while they were killing him. When the people who were killing him would have stopped if he just said, Caesar is Lord. Caesar brings life. Now that's kind of hard. When someone's like taking your life, and in the midst of taking your life, you're like, yeah, Jesus brings life, Caesar doesn't. When all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. I mean, this is terribly difficult. He's saying Jesus alone gives life as it was costing him his life. You know, it is easy to hold fast to Jesus' name, I find, when it's of an advantage to me. If I'm talking to someone and I think that making a profession of faith, talking about what I do, uh, the people I know in the church and other types of things, identifying with people in the church, if I think that that is going to get me somewhere with them, then it's real easy to say. On the other hand, when I think that someone's going to snub me, hold me in contempt, think less of me and my credibility if I identify with Jesus, if I think that this is actually not going to help me out, then it becomes a lot harder. I mean, let's just, let's just get like real practical here. You are applying for a home to rent. And you think, well, I'm going to look around their house. And if I see that they're Christians, then I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? But if I don't see that, then I'm going to be quiet because they might think that I'm crazy and not like me, right? We, we don't know this. We, none of us experience anything like this. No? It's just me. Okay. I think we know what this is like. And they confess Jesus when it is difficult. And Jesus commends them. But, he says, I have a few things against you, verse 14. Well, what could he possibly have against them when they hold fast to his name and in the midst of adversity? Well, that brings us to the confrontation. And Jesus confronts the church because while they confessed his name in the midst of adversity, they were also compromising. How? Look at verse 14. Verse 14 tells us that some of them hold to the teaching of Balaam. And verse 15 tells us that some of them hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've heard of the Nicolaitans before. It was back in the church when um, Jesus was writing to the church at Ephesus. Uh, to be honest, we're not really sure who these people are. But they were probably related to this false teacher, Balaam. Now, Balaam is a name that is derived from the book of Numbers because Balaam was a false prophet who... Uh, who in the book of Numbers, it seems, was uh, led the people of Israel astray somehow. At least that's how it later on attributes it uh, to him, even though we don't see that directly. But here's the thing. Balaam, at this time, kind of became like a... Um, okay, I've just forgot the name. Uh, he became like uh, Benedict Arnold. 
You know Benedict Arnold, right? Well, you probably don't. I mean, I don't. I don't know much about his life or much about the details of it or what he did or that kind of thing. But I know that if you call someone to Benedict Arnold, you are saying that they are a traitor, right? We don't have to know a lot about his name, a lot about his history, a lot about his past. We don't have to know about the details. We just know that that name kind of stands for traitor. Does that make sense? Well, Balaam's name in this day, uh, it kind of stood for a false prophet who led the people of God into compromise, right? And so they are following a false prophet who is leading them into compromise, deceiving God's people. And what was the compromise over? Well, verse 14 tells us, they're eating food sacrificed to idols and perhaps practicing sexual immorality, even though that we're not sure that that's, it's probably sexual immorality, but that could be a metaphor to talk about idolatry as we see throughout Scripture. But here's the thing. I'm sure that what they were telling them is this. Look, that's great. That's religion, but this is business. That's religion, but this is politics. That's religion, but this is sports. And so we know that you got to get real. To get on in the world, you have to get real. And so when it talks about food sacrificed to idols, it's talking about eating meals in the temple precincts in front of an idol. But they had to do that in their business relationships because that's where business transactions took place. I mean, maybe they said, look, God knows your heart. And you've got to survive in the world. So just go forward. Just do it. I... In, 19, or in, uh, in 2012, 2013, a story came out about the fact because one Miami Dolphins lineman um, quit the team. And the reason that he quit the team was, and what came out through this, is that they were holding their offensive line meetings in a strip club. And if you didn't show up to the offensive line meetings, I mean, this was like their weekly meeting to talk about the game plan. If you didn't show up, you would be fined. Now imagine that. You've been working your whole life to get into the NFL. I mean, if you are at that level, then you have, you have sacrificed a lot of time, a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, and a lot of tears to get there. You finally get there, and then you're in this situation where in order to actually participate in the team, you have to go to these meetings that are held at a strip club. And this would have been the kind of situation that, they're ta- that, uh, that uh, the people of Pergamum, the church of Pergamum was in. And, and this false prophet says, well, look, you can be a good influence there. Just don't look up. I know that you, I know that you really don't care to be there. Well, you, your wife understands. Your girlfriend understands. I mean, you've got to. But see, it's not just like strip clubs, is it? There are so many other ways in which the guilds in which we participate have certain things that we say, it's just how things are done. I don't know what it is in your guild. I don't know what it is. But here, they're being coached into compromising. And compromising, it seems, with sexual immorality. Uh, maybe they said, look, it... It's, it's just your body, and that's not your soul. 
what you do with your body doesn't matter, right? I mean, your soul is what's eternal, not your body. Your body doesn't matter. Or, or maybe they said, look, I mean, it's just, you're just, uh, you're just physical and human and we have needs and therefore, or they said maybe as long as you're in a long-term committed relationship, it doesn't matter how you express yourself sexually. In other words, what the false teachers at Pergamum were leading the church to do was to get involved in or to participate in uh, syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of Christianity with other worldviews and religious practices. You take Christianity and you try to mix it with other things. And syncretism is always, always, always um, a danger to the church. I mean, how are we syncretistic today? Where are we tempted to? I think one of the primary ways in which we are tempted to syncretism is in uh, trying to take Christianity and blend that with what's called, what sociologists call expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the idea that each person has his or her own way of realizing their own humanity and potential. And, and that, we are called to live that out, to express it, rather than to conform to any models or modes imposed on us by others, especially parents and institutions. It, that our identity, our fundamental identity, comes through self-expression. And that we have to discover our own authentic desires and we have to be free to live out our own authentic self. In fact, if we don't, it is wrong. And so, in other words, the command of expressive individualism, if you said, what is the greatest command, and ask uh, someone, they would say, be the real you. And the goal is happiness. And we all want happiness. Fulfillment. That's what we're here for. That's why we're here. And... Uh, and the way, like, this is so in the air. Let me prove it to you. My daughter came up to uh, my laptop as I was writing my sermon, and she's been trying to learn to read, so she'll just start reading anything. So she starts reading my sermon, and I hear her reading, and I see her, and I also had an article on expressive individualism up next to it, and she's reading the article, and it said something like, um, said something like, you know, be the real you, express yourself. And she reads it, and then she goes, aww, that's, that's so nice. That's so cute. And where did she learn this? Well, because all the heroes that we have today, think about kids' uh, kids movies, all the heroes that we have today are actually promoting this. This is Elsa. You've got to be free to express yourself and go, this is, this is Moana. This is what, you've got to find your own way. You've got to go out. And this is actually what uh, my daughter's imbibing. And this is something that we have to correct. I mean, I'm not saying that she can't watch those movies or whatever. We can't actually talk about that. Because the reality is we can't protect her from it. It's everywhere. And I can't protect you from it. It's everywhere. But what I can do is get you to discern it and realize it. And maybe, because the question is, is when we're told... Uh, and this is how it looks when it's blended with Christianity, by the way. God's a creator. God made me. Therefore, God must have given me desires. And God wants my happiness. And therefore, I need to be able to express these desires because God wants me to be happy. So I should do it. 
And I know scripture says this, but, but what is more fundamental is that God gave me these desires. Of course, what we don't really, um, what we don't really uh, think about too much in that is, you sure you want to identify which, with every desire in you? Like, which di- desires do you want to identify with? Because most of us in today's culture don't want to identify with that, like, rage and anger that we find in ourselves. Uh, and most of us aren't going, well, I need to be free to express this. And right now, I am really mad at this clerk at this, uh, in this line or whatever, and so I want to throw them up against the wall. And that is just me being me. You got to accept me. Right? Which one? How do you know which desires are good and which are bad? Well, we leave it up to ourselves, but really what we're leaving up to is the culture to tell us. And what the Bible tells us is that we have to come back to his, God's word. We have to come back to God's word. Expressive individualism. Uh, and this, this comes up in, in so many ways. It's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with church membership and any kind of giving any authority to the church at all. Because, again, that strikes right against the heart, runs right against the heart of expressive individualism, which says that things are out there for me to express myself and to learn who I truly am. And if that is not helping me do that, then I reject it. Right? Uh, another one is power of positive thinking. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the, if I just think positively, then good things will happen. It's Christianity and Oprah. Uh, and again, syncretism can take very progressive forms and liberal forms. It can also take very traditional and conservative forms. It can take progressive forms like the sexual revolution. In verse 14, sexual immorality is part of the syncretism that's going on. And we are told we have to be free to express ourselves sexually and express our sexual desires in whatever way we want. And if we don't, then we're actually less than human and stifled as human and can't be fulfilled. That's what our culture tells us. But what the Bible says, on the one hand, is actually sex is given for the sole purpose of furthering covenant relationships between a man and a woman. And on the other hand, sexual fulfillment is not everything. It's not everything. And... It's not who you are, and you don't need it to live. It it can take very progressive and liberal forms, but it can also take very traditional and conservative forms, like nationalism, like prioritizing marriage and the isolated nuclear family over larger community and the people of God. And I know most people others think, well, no, that's biblical. Or have we syncretized? I mean, is it really biblical if you read about a single Savior in 1 Corinthians 7? I mean, is, is it really biblical when Jesus says things like, you know, those around me who follow my word are my mother and brother and sister? And starts redefining the nuclear family. And we say, well, you know, the qualifications for elders, yes, the qualifications for elders, but that's not a nuclear family. A household in the ancient world was not like, you know, 2.5 kids in a home. It, it was actually had to do with business and community. It was much larger than that. So is it that we have been biblical or is it that we have been syncretistic with a culture that came out of the post-World War II era? 
That's, that's the question. And, and here's where I see it, just to give one example. Um, most job applications for pastor in the PCA, in our denomination, say that you have to be married with kids, which would disqualify Jesus and Paul. Right? I think that shows that we have somehow imbibed. We have imbibed this idolatry. And so it has, it has progressive forms. It has conservative forms. But I want you to notice this, that, that this confrontation is not only against those who have compromised. It's also against those who have not. Verse 14 says, some, you have some there who hold. Verse 15, you have some who hold. Not all of them held it, but Jesus tells them all to repent, verse 16. And he says that they don't, that he's going to come and he's going to wage war against them. That is those who have compromised. In other words, the issue in Pergamum is that there were people in the church who had not compromised and they're saying nothing to those who had. In the name of tolerance, they put up with idolatry and sexual immorality. And I feel this temptation. I mean, who wants to be judgmental? And who wants to impose our views on others? See, in our culture, we are told that the only absolute virtue is tolerance. And now listen, Christians believe in tolerance. Christians promote tolerance. I believe that we should promote tolerance. I believe that we should promote legal tolerance. That is, the right for others to have different beliefs or practices and not to have the government say, like, impose, uh, uh, like shut down their beliefs or freedom of speech or things like that. Of course, we all believe there's restrictions. No one thinks that kind of you can practice pedophilia, right? So we all think that there's, there's some kind of line on tolerance. At the same time, I think that we should practice legal tolerance. We should also practice social tolerance because as sinners saved by grace, we have no right to look down on others for their views and practices. As sinners who are affected not only in our actions, but also in our thinking, we have no right for hubris against those who have false beliefs, beliefs that we believe are false. We should practice tolerance because the compassion of God is forbearing in order that all might come to repentance. And so in this present world, before the kingdom is consummated, God is patient with the world and patient with us. And we should be patient with others. But when people talk about tolerance today, most of the time they don't talk about these legal and social rights. What they talk about is accepting others' views and practices as valid. And that I don't believe that we do. Because when we accept others' practices and views as valid that are harmful, then we give up something that is greater than tolerance that Christians are called to, and that is charity. Charity. Charity is to think the best of someone. Charity is to seek the best for someone. Charity is to love someone into flourishing. And sometimes what that means is that Charity calls us to say, we think that's wrong and that hurts you. And Jesus says, repent, verse 17, or 16. And I will come wage war against those people with the sword of my mouth. Whoa, who is this Jesus? And where did he come from? 
Now, that's not the Jesus that we usually, we usually have a picture of, right? I was listening to a podcast, a famous podcast called The Liturgist. Maybe some of you listen to it. And I was listening to this podcast on The Liturgist, and as I'm listening to it, uh, uh, these, um, these two folks were talking. They said that they no longer identify with Christianity because of all the judgment and the rules and that kind of thing. And they said, if we could just get back to Jesus, it would be okay, and the words of Jesus. Okay, well, here are the words of Jesus. I will come in war against those people with the sword of my mouth. And when people say that, I actually wonder, have you read the words of Jesus? Uh, I mean, Bertram Russell, who was an agnostic, he has this book, it was a lecture originally given, called Why I'm Not a Christian. And in it, he, gives these, he goes through these different proofs and why he's not, and all these arguments for God. But at the end of it, he actually just goes through Jesus' statements on judgment, and he says, I couldn't accept a God like this. There are a lot of statements from Jesus in the Gospels about judgment. If you read it honestly, there's a statement here about judgment. And the question we have to ask is, why judgment? In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Pippert says, We take pride in our tolerance of the excess of others, but love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more the father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil. Why judgment? Because Jesus loves the world too much not to get angry at the world's self-destructive behavior and patterns. See, if you don't get angry, then you are seriously suppressing something or you don't love. That's why before Rebecca Pippert, Dorothy Sayers said, in the world it's called tolerance, but in hell it's called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which to die. See, we call it, we call tolerance love, but often it's not love, it's enablement. And Jesus says, repent. Now why should they listen? And why should we? Why should we tell others to repent? Why should we repent ourselves? Well, that brings us to the consolation. Finally, verse 17, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says that he will give manna and a stone and a name. Manna. The people of Israel throughout, uh, when they were wandering in the wilderness, God provided, graciously provided for them nourishment through manna. And, and this manna, in other words, what Jesus is saying, is saying, I will nourish you. You know, in white stones in the ancient world at this time, stones were used as admission tickets. That's how you got into these banquets. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you an admission ticket into the banquet. And guess what? Jews believed that when the Messiah came at his heavenly banquet, that manna would reappear. 
And Jesus says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but I give my flesh for the life of the world. In other words, Jesus saying, I will admit you. I will admit you to my heavenly banquet and I will nourish you with myself. And I will not only admit you, I will acquit you. Those stones were also used in judging. When a jury would sit there, they would have two stones, a black stone and a white stone. And when they were deciding whether someone was innocent or guilty, if they were guilty, they would give the black stone. Guilty. If they were innocent, they would give the white stone. Jesus is saying, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've compromised, listen, repent, come to me. My blood is sufficient. I will give you the white stone. I will call you innocent. I will admit you. And I will name you. Because on that stone there is... A name. You know we're all looking for a name. Ever since the garden. God started naming everything when he created it. He named the sea. He named the dry land. It's God's ownership of things. And he named Adam and Eve, but when they rejected God, they never heard their name again. They were kicked out of the garden. And so ever since then, humanity has been trying to build a name, to make a name. Genesis chapter 11, uh, the people kicked out of the garden come together and they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a tower that reaches to the heaven. But God comes and he destroys the tower. He doesn't let them make a name. In Isaiah 4, verse 7, Isaiah is prophesying about the temple being destroyed. He says, on that day, Women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In other words, we will share our bed with anyone. Just give us your name. They're desperate for a name. We are all desperate for a name. And some of us have been building towers to get that name. I've been building a lot of towers to get that name. I want a name, preacher, scholar, author, good guy, son. What name have you been trying to get? And some of us have been, we've been sharing our bed with a lot of people to try to get a name. We are all desperate for a name. And Jesus says, I will give you a name. Some of us want a name. Some of us just want a new name. Because people have been giving us a name our whole life, like stupid. Like failure. People have been giving us a name like weak and coward. And we want a new name. Jesus says, I will give you a new name. And what is that name? Revelation 3.12 tells us that to the one who overcomes, God will put a name on them, the name of my God and the name of my city, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of, uh, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. What's the name that Jesus gives his people? It's his name. Antipas is called my faithful witness. You know the only other person that's called faithful witness in the book of Revelation? It's Jesus. The name that Jesus gives you is his name. You know, 
there are, uh, there are a lot of people who are not, um, they're not taking, you know, when two people get married, a lot of women are not taking their husband's names. I actually don't have a beef about that, and I think that there's a lot of uh, reasons why I understand people say, why should a woman take a man's name? And there are a lot of reasons why I understand on like a secular understanding, it doesn't make any sense. But you know, there is one good reason. Because a Christian marriage is telling a story between Christ and the church. And Christ gives his bride his own name. And Christ wants to give you his name. And so some of you, for some of you, he's going to call you beloved. Who have never felt love. For some of you who feel stained with sin, he's going to call you the one who knew no sin. Maybe some of you are going to be called faithful and true. Maybe some of you are going to be called the Lamb of God. Others of you are going to be called daughter of God and son of God. Some of you are going to be called victorious, the one who overcomes. He will give you a name. The Avid brothers write this song called Murder in the City. And they say, always remember there was nothing worth sharing like the love that let us share our name. Jesus loves you so much, he wants to give you his name. And in doing that, he identifies you with you. And he claims you as his own. You are his. Receive his name. Christian, anointed, prophet, priest, king. And live that out in this world. Amen.